Good evening, everyone. Well, you pretty much made it. I know some of you in your minds weren't too sure about that. Um, also, I like I like the um, psycho architecture of a retreat as it develops. It's more like a salad spinner at the uh, near the you know as we go into the retreat where everyone's kind of plastered along the wall where the where the chairs are. <laughs> it's just the natural course of a retreat. So we're down to the exploration of the last of the Brahma Viharas, uh, and it's not the least, although you can rank them any way you want, equanimity. And uh, that's the stability of mind that allows you to be present with an open heart, no matter how difficult or how wonderful the conditions are. So it's this balance regardless of conditions. And it's, it's said that the boundless qualities of loving kindness, compassion, and sympathetic joy all stem from equanimity. Their success in cultivation is supported by equanimity. It's the glue that holds them all together. And equanimity also is uh, open-hearted and ceaselessly compassionate, responsive, okay? It's the ground for wisdom and freedom. It's the protector of compassion and love. The Buddha described a mind filled with equanimity as abundant, exalted, immeasurable, without hostility, and without ill will. A little story. The story purportedly takes place in the early 1700s in China. So a young girl in the village was pregnant. Her angry parents demanded to know, all right, who was the father? And at first she was resistant to confess. But the very anxious and very embarrassed girl finally pointed to Hakuin, the Zen abbot of the monastery near the village who everyone previously revered for living such a pure life, above reproach. Okay. So the outraged parents marched up there with uh, extended family and you know everybody, kind of like an angry mob almost. Um, they confronted Hakuin with their daughter's accusation. And he simply replied, is that so? And so when the child was born, uh, by that time, uh, Hakuin was viewed as a pariah. The, the usual support for the monastery uh, had dwindled. Uh, so the whole village had a whole different view in relationship with the monastery. So they, they went up there, and they had the child with them, and they demanded that Hakuin take care of this child because it was his responsibility. Is that so, said Hakuin calmly as he accepted the child. 
So for many months, he took loving care of this child there in the monastery. And at some point, the young woman could no longer withstand what she had done, you know, the lie she told. So she confessed that the real father was uh, a young man in the village who she tried to protect. The parents immediately went to Hakuin and begged forgiveness and apologies and tried to get the child back. And so they explained what happened to Hakuin. And his response, you can guess, is that so? As he handed back the child. Okay. So that's the quality of equanimity uh, demonstrated at a pretty high level of refinement. It's very steady, it's even, it's compassionate. And in this little story, how can we demonstrate this astounding evenness of temperament in the face of really strong hostility and blame? You can, you can feel the clean power of equanimity in this story. It feels heroic without any ego push to it. Is that so? Now, each of you have had moments in your life when a situation arises that's particularly challenging and intense, and sometimes the feeling comes over you, hey, I can handle this. I can deal with it. I can be with this. And you move through it with a calm acceptance. It's that calm acceptance of what is. It's like this. And from that place of a calm but energetic acceptance, balanced also, your thoughts, words, and actions are generally more on point. They're more skillful. That's equanimity. That's your Hakuin capacity. We all have that. In life, sometimes the conditions get so challenging. Sometimes all the escape hatches get closed for us. And we don't have any choice but to surrender to what is, to stop struggling and let go. We're blocked from everything else. And these difficult times, difficult conditions, when they, when they arise, they sometimes can create an opening for the arising of equanimity out of the harshest, most difficult conditions. So many years ago, I, I went on a camping odyssey with my 11-year-old son. And we were hiking and camping around the, around the country and we were uh, behind Aspen in the Maroon Bells wilderness area. And we had hiked in and we were camping by this frozen, wasn't frozen, but it was a very cold, high mountain lake. And, um, uh, and we had walked in, I don't know, probably about 15 miles. And it was raining for a couple of days. So we were mostly stuck in the tent, he and I. We were reading, playing cards, trying not to go stir-crazy. We were stuck in the tent. So it's Sunday night, and it's still raining. Uh, it's not quite Sunday night. There's some daylight, probably an hour, hour and a half of daylight. 
and he starts complaining that his stomach hurts and the right side hurts. And so I go, uh-oh, exactly. And I palpate the area to see if it's hard or seems hard. And it felt hard to me. And I'm thinking, oh, appendicitis. And here I am. He's too big for me to carry out. And it's 15 miles the way we came in. And the way out, we haven't been on that trail. And it's probably 12 miles. And the sun's getting ready to go down. And because I'm a great camper, great campers always travel with hardly any weight. You shave everything off. You set up your camp before it's dark. You don't need a flashlight. So, a, a, stupid, stupid. Yeah. Across the lake are these two college kids, and they're, they're camped. I'd seen them a day or two before. So I go over to them, and well, I realize I've got to make a run for it. So I go over to them, and I say, guys, please move your tent next to my son. Comfort him the best you can. Uh, I'm going for help. And... Uh, you know, and I tried to get some information. Did you come up this other way? They said, yes. I said, do you have a car I can borrow that's parked down there? They said, no, we were dropped off. And I said, well, can I borrow your flashlight? And they said, well, we don't carry a flashlight. <laughs> we're, you know, that was the rage then, you know. <laughs> you know. So, so I started running, you know, and it was great for the first hour or so. <laughs> And then it started getting dark. You know, so I'm thinking, well, all right. There's a lot of switchbacks. The trail's narrow. I'm not familiar with it. It's getting dark. And I remember those Carlos Castaneda books again where they talk about, well, you just feel the trail and you just run and you just know it's there. And yeah, well, that didn't work for me. Get to the end where there's a turn and I kind of crash into the bushes a little bit and then make a turn. And then it was getting really dark, and it was still raining. And I'd, as the switchback would happen, I'd, I'd tumble down a little embankment. Not hurt bad or anything, just some scratches, slightly sprained ankle, <laughs> slightly, not hindering anything too much. Get up, find my way back to the trail, and keep going, keep going. And then I'd fall again down a deeper embankment, because the trail was pretty narrow. And uh, at this time, I couldn't find the trail again. I thought I was going in the right direction, but somehow I must have missed where it turned. And um, I, I was getting a little desperate at that point. Um, and I'd been scratched up, and both my ankles were a little, little dinged up then. And I thought of my son up there with possibly a burst of appendix. And I wasn't able to find the trail. So trying to will myself into greater effort, but I wasn't having any luck. I was kind of, there was bushes and boulders. and So I was pretty emotionally distraught, pretty close to exhaustion, and I didn't have much left. And I remember kind of stumbling once more, and then I just kind of lied there I was on the ground just muttering out loud to myself or to everybody, but there wasn't anybody there, of course. I can't do this. 
I'd give up. You know? There were no chance for me, no options. And in that moment of just depletion, I stopped struggling. You know? There was a, some little bit of release, a surrender. You know? The situation was out of my hands. I knew that I would gather myself and expend whatever energy I had left. But conditions were going to take their course. It's like this. You know? They weren't the conditions I wanted. So it was like the mind had broken open. You know? And all this thrashing released. The struggle stopped. You know? And I laid there pretty quietly and internally just started trying to gather myself together and the mind slowed down a little bit. The senses were coming more online. Perceptions were a little clearer. And out of that, out of that space, I heard the sound of what I thought was a stream. But it was, it was raining. I wasn't sure. But yeah, I knew. If I could find that, get to that stream, streams go downhill, I'll get out of there. You know, and I'll just go along the stream. So sure enough, there was a stream. I found it moving along alongside the stream. There wasn't a trail there. And lo and behold, gone for a little while or a ways, and by that time I'd really lost track of time, and there was a light on the other side of the, of the stream, kind of in the middle of nowhere. And I thought, oh my gosh, there's some other fools out here camping in this two or three day rainstorm. So I start yelling across the stream, which was really swollen, and I'm yelling, yelling, and finally, Somebody comes out, and they probably couldn't believe there's somebody out there yelling. And, and I'm saying, well, I need to get down. And they said, well, you need, to, you, know, you need to cross. Go down the stream, and you know, they're yelling, there's a log. We'll meet you on the other side. So I go down the stream, there's a log. I fall off the log. No, <laughs> no big deal, I'm already soaked. Kind of pull myself out, and these people greet me and say, well, you know, glad to, you know, uh, give you a flashlight. (laughs) And they said, yeah, you're not that far. You know, it was like seven more miles or something (laughs) like that. But I had a flashlight. So then I was back in the game and I get, I get down to the, get down to the parking lot and they didn't, they didn't have a car either. I was trying to, you know, get whatever help I could get. They didn't have a car. They were dropped off. Somebody was going to pick them up in a few days. So I get down there, and there is a car in the parking lot. And I get close to it, and I see that the windows are fogged, you know? Now, nah, don't let your mind run away. The windows are just fogged. Somebody's in there probably sleeping. They got soaked. Their sleeping bag's a mess. Or whatever. That's what I'm thinking. So I'm knocking on the window. Now, I've been in the woods for like a week, and I'm filled with mud, and I look like a, a crazy person. And so this sweet young woman, rolls down the window. And I'm blabbering what's happening. And she goes, well, hop in. We'll find somebody. So I get in the car, and we drive down and drive out, and we pass, and we see a house or two, and they're dark. And we see one up on a hill. There's a light on. And it was like probably, I don't know, 1 o'clock in the morning or something like that. And so we drive up there, knock on the door. This guy answers the door. He's a little shocked. There's two of us there. And I blab out my story. And he says, well, 
I've been up looking at the weather. I'm planning on flying. He had a plane somewhere. I'm planning on flying my daughter to college, which began the next week she had to be there. So, and he said, I'm a member of Mountain Rescue. Come on in. And so he, call, he's, and we, he starts making some calls. He calls the sheriff. Bring me two walkie-talkies. He calls Grand Junction, where they have a helicopter. They say, gas up the helicopter. You know, we'll, we'll call you from when we get to the top of the mountain. And, you know, if the weather clears, you can come and get... They're not going to fly at night in a storm in the mountains. But they would in the morning if it clears a little bit. So he's making the calls, and he's thrown all my clothes in the dryer. He gets out some, some tape. He's taping my ankles. I'm getting in dry clothes, getting a little something to eat. And the sheriff shows up, gives us the walkie-talkies a backup walkie-talkie, and, and one, and off we go, walking up the mountain again, another 12 miles or 13, whatever it is. And so I'm following this gazelle as we go up, <laughs> up, up the mountain. And I'm getting a little tired by then, but I'm running on adrenaline because what are we going to find? So as, as the dawn breaks, we get to the, where this lake is. I can't quite remember the name of it. We get to this lake. The two tents are there. I kind of run over to the tent, throw open the flap, and my son goes, oh, hi, Dad. I said, how are you, how are, you know, and he says, oh, I, I just had to take a poop, you know, and, and, and we, had been, we had been sitting in that tent eating gorp, you know, nuts and raisins and stuff, and no wonder, you know. So we got reception, called Grand Junction, said, don't fly. <laughs> Still cost me over $1,000 just to gas it up and have the crew ready. You know, that was expensive. And so the other guy took off down the mountain. He was going to take his daughter to college. And we packed up, made some breakfast for, for my son and I. And then we walked back down the mountain. But at the, but the end of down, up, down, um, I'd, I was cooked. And so we got a motel room, got a bunch of ice cream and cookies, and watched TV for like, you know, the whole next day. So in those conditions, equanimity got activated. Somehow, with all the options closed, eventually led to a surrender. Then there was a little bit of calm, some spaciousness, a little room to operate, to kind of think it through. Thinking back on it, uh, it was similar much to, to, way, to the way uh, Rinzai Zen practice works. You know, there's two aspects to Rinzai Zen. One is the koans that just so confuse your mind that eventually the mind breaks open and you're free for some moments. And there's also the rigor of the sitting, where you sit in a defined posture. You don't move. You don't get much sleep. Uh, the sittings are long. Um, there's a, um, a supporter or, or the abbot walks back and forth with an encouragement stick. <laughs> and that's kind of what it's called. And so if you're slumping or you're falling asleep, it will hit you 
on a pressure pointer somewhere to give you, bring back the energy that you need. And it's a beautiful system that works, but you're kind of, you're tor- in a way kind of torturing the body, torturing the mind, and eventually you have to let go. You stop resisting fighting, and that's when there's an opening. So it was kind of like that up, up in the woods. So equanimity is knowing that trying to cling to everything we like and freeze it like that, or to push everything away we don't like, equanimity knows that that only causes more suffering. That's the wisdom of equanimity. Equanimity totally gets it, that there's an unpleasantness to the world, and a lot of it. And that the, the real, the sane approach to living is to recognize we can't set all the conditions in our life to the way that we want them. We can't set them up to deliver constant pleasure, constant gain, or constant praise. And another way to look at equanimity is that it's the radical non-interference with the flow of our senses. The radical non-interference with the flow of our senses. It's, it's non-resistant allows it all to rise and pass, just like everything else in nature, feeling everything but not pushing on it or grasping it. It's really the difference between kind of living life, life, life like this or like this. That's equanimity. It's balance. Its characteristic is to re- relax the mind before the mind falls into extremes. This is a a quote from Joseph Campbell, and he's speaking to a group of teachers. And he says, the first step to knowledge of the wonder and mystery of life is the recognition of the monstrous nature of the earthly human realm, as well as its glory. The realization that this is just how it is, and that it cannot and will not be other than it is. Those who think they know how the universe could have been, had they created it, a universe without pain, without sorrow, without time, without death, are unfit for illumination. So if you really want to help this world, world, what you will have to teach is how to live in it. And that no one can do who has not themselves learned how to live in joyful sorrow and sorrowful joy of the knowledge of life as it is. The joyful sorrow and sorrowful joy of life as it is. The Taoists talk of the thousand joys and the thousand sorrows that make up a life. And this from the Buddha. Praise and blame, gain and loss, pleasure and pain, fame and disrepute are the eight worldly winds. They ceaselessly change. As a mountain is unshaken by the wind, so the heart of a wise person is unmoved by all the changes on this earth. So the heart of a wise person is unmoved by all the changes on this earth. 
meaning that that heart has developed the power and strength to stay open in difficult times. And this from Dolly Parton. If you want the rainbow, you got to put up with the rain. Another story. Rainy nights are good nights for stories. There's, there was this poor old farmer. He had a single horse and a teenage son. That's all he had. And one day his horse ran away. A bunch of the neighbors came over to the farmer and said, Oh, how awful. I'm sorry you lost your horse. And the old man, who was known to be a little strange to his neighbor, said, Maybe. Who knows? Could be good or bad. And the neighbors just left. They didn't know what to make of his response. A few days later, the horse came back. And two wild horses came with it. And the neighbors came by, and they were kind of happy for him. Hey, that's great. Now you have three horses. And the farmer said, well, maybe. Who knows? Could be good. Could be bad. So the neighbors left again, and who knows what they thought. A few days later, the man's son was trying to break one of those horses, and he fell off, and he broke his leg in a bad way. Neighbors came by again, and we are so sorry. You know, that your son won't be able to work in the fields with you and help you with the harvest, you know, for a long time. And the farmer again said, well, maybe, who knows? Could be bad, could be good, you know. A few days later, the army came, and every young man in the village was inducted into the army and to go to war, and it was incredibly dangerous. And most of them would not return. But they couldn't take the farmer's son because his leg was, was at least temporarily trashed. So he got to stay behind. You know, that could be good, could be bad. So the sto- that story, that old story, I find really timely. Um, we just don't know. You think of today's polemics. And how easy it is to slip into a self-righteous position where you definitely know the answer. In truth, what we really know is the tiniest sliver of all the conditions, all the causes and conditions that are, that are in play and what will happen going forward. Now, of course, as caring citizens, we've got to make decisions and we've got to act on, on that tiny sliver. We don't really have a choice, and sometimes we have to act with great vigor. But where I've come to, where I've landed in my advancing age, is that ultimately I don't know. What are the future results of a current situation that may currently be causing harm? I'm not sure. I don't know. Sometimes periods of great pain precede great openings happens individually, it happens in cultures. Sometimes great trials bring out the best of human potential. Could this be one of those times in history? On the other hand, sometimes conditions seem relatively okay, but the undercurrent is an almost slow, imperceptible slide, a continuation and deepening of forms of exploitation, inequality, and the piling up of resources in in the hands of a few. 
with all of it carried off under soft talk of improving the lot for everyone. But it doesn't seem to quite happen. But it's very beautiful talk. Historians almost never predict the future correctly. Uh, I sure can. You know, I reflect back to um, uh, a trip I took to Israel. And, and Tel Megiddo is, is a place in Israel. And if any of you have ever been there, maybe, you, maybe you've seen it. It's empty now. No one lives there. But sit, there was... Um, it was first settled about 10,000 years ago. Think of that. And over that period of time, and there's archaeologists who have been working there for probably 150 years, working little by little, uncovering one civilization over after another in, in layers. And when I was there, it was just a really hot, kind of miserable summer day, and they were working under awnings. And you could just walk with them. There was a couple groups from different countries sit and talk with them. And they had excavated 26 civilizations on top of one another. And I'm sitting there, I'm thinking, I'll bet all these people thought they had it made. You know, each one is like, oh yeah, we got this. We got a water source. We're on a crossroads of trade. It's all working. 26, and they weren't to the bottom yet. They didn't know him. They don't know how many more. You can... Look it up. It's a fascinating archaeological dig. But you do have to make choices as a, as a citizen and stand up for, for what you think is right. But the older I get, the more I've got a humbled stance on this. I know so little of the conditions, all the variables in play, what's going to happen, what's not going to happen. I have to act, but really it's my best guess. Not some ultimate, ultimate truth that I happen to be the ownership of. I could be really wrong. Uh, I, don't, I don't know. But there's a freedom in the equanimity that comes with a humble stance of not knowing. I mean, you're still acting, but it, you know, it's like there's a humility of not being so sure. It feels like a burden gets put down. All that self-righteousness is really hard to carry. It's heavy. There's a, as there are for all the Brahma Vihars, there's a near enemy of equanimity, and it's indifference. But there's a lot of flavors of indifference. Um, and so it's important to mention that and to get a little bit sensitized to those, to those flavors. Um, and again, a near enemy is, is something that looks like that characteristic of equanimity, but it misses. So the far enemy, in other words, the easy one, uh, to equanimity is I don't care. You know, that's an easy one. Or I hate it. You know, that's obviously not equanimity. That's strong indifference. 
the other end of the continuum. But there's lots of, lots of flavors. So I'd like to do a, a short reflection where we just kind of roll through and contemplate some of these flavors of indifference. And, and what's interesting, they're all versions of aversion, each one of them. You know, in all cases, they distance you from suffering. So just close your eyes. Take a few deep breaths. And feel into these words as I say them, these flavors of indifference. Feel how they distance you from suffering. Feel how they create further separation. So the, so the first flavor of near enemy, of equanimity, is escapism. Escapism. What's that flavor like? Another near enemy of equanimity that separates us from suffering is denial and delusion. Another, complacency. Another near enemy, resignation. Can you feel the indifference in resignation? Another, acquiescence to oppression. Acquiescence to oppression. Numbness. Moral insensitivity. Intellectual aloofness. Feel how they distance you from suffering. How they create more separation. Grasping. Cynicism. How easy is it to fall into cynicism? Fear. And privilege. And you can open your eyes. And you may think, fear? What do you mean, fear? Why would that be a form of indifference. But if fear isn't detected, if your mindfulness isn't on, so to speak, and you reflexively turn away from a situation, um, you may think that you have balance or calm, but if you look a little deeper, you notice, oh, it's fear. Fear turned me away. That's, That's what's going on here. And privilege, what about that? 
Point being, when the energy of privilege exists, you can be completely blind to the suffering of others. The unconscious bias, the conceit, the feeling of being better than. You're just, you're just flying above, just riding above. And when that energy is active, you're easily detached from the suffering of others. You're oblivious. That's a, there's a false equanimity, a false coolness. There's, there's no connection. It's missing. You know, there's a, there's, thankfully, there's some, some growing movement of, uh, in consciousness and in groups and different places where the examination of privilege is happening in all its forms, in all its guises, and the effect that it has. So compassion is part of equanimity. It has to be. If it's not there, it's something other than equanimity. At times when I might be thinking I'm, I'm, have, you know, I'm feeling equanimity, I always make that other check. All right, where's the compassion? Am I really kind of cooled out about this in a positive, compassionate way? Am I balanced? Or am I turning away and separating, you know, creating distance? You know, look for the compassion. You think you're balanced. Is there compassion? Is the heart open? And we all can probably think of people that we know. Some people might think, well, that person is pretty balanced. They seem to they deal with a lot of things, you know. They might might making the offhanded statement when when they learn somebody is sick or something happens and oh that's their karma you know what could be more cold and indifferent than a comment like that even if it is true there's a there's a a, a separation uh, you know and a turning away from the the suffering there's no compassion in that statement. It's a cold indifference. But other, people's may, other people we know may be so compassionate, out of balance, they're just lost. They just are just, their hearts open. There's no, there's no balancing factor. It's just crash and burn, crash and burn, crash and burn. Yeah. So equanimity... When, op- when it's operational, has that capacity to be in touch with suffering very directly and at the same time not be swept away by it. Equanimity is the, is the strong back that supports the soft front of compassion. I like to look at, it, look at it that way. The strong back that supports the soft front of compassion. And those interdependent qualities are really, they're the foundation for your being able to work with suffering. You know, that equanimity allows that kind of, it has a radiant calm, peace, and trust in it that can receive the world in whatever form it's manifesting. And at the same time, makes it, it makes it very possible to let go of the world. It's a beautiful paradox in practice. 
here's a, a couple of haiku from the 17th century Zen poet um, Basho. And it's his, you can feel the equanimity in these two very short poems. First one, fleas, lice, the horse pissing near my pillow. You know, you can just picture him lying down in a barn. It's like this, you know. And this one. Since my house burned down, I have a better view of the rising moon. (laughs) Basha was quite a character, but there's a demonstration of equanimity. The horse pissing near my pillow. All right, so as you go through this life, you really care about the well-being of those you love and want to alleviate their pain the best that you can in ways that you're able, and you care about the larger world and the exploitation, the racism, the war, the degradation of the planet, the whole catastrophe. That's your natural response. That's part of the beauty of being a human. You know, how can we hold all this, the personal, the global, you know, how can we hold it without succumbing to burnout or forms of indifference? You know, without running away or turning away. And it's in this cultivation of equanimity. It's what you've been working with this week. Meeting your experience with as much care, courage as you can muster. Thich Nhat Hanh wrote this during the Vietnam War. Flare bombs boom on the dark sky. A child claps his hand and laughs. I hear the sound of guns and laughter dies. But the witness remains. The balance of a spiritual practice is delicate to care deeply, extend compassion, and not tumble into identification and lose yourself. And as your equanimity matures, your heart will have the capacity to stay open more and more in the face of your suffering and the suffering around you. And equanimity invites your natural wisdom because An equanimous mind is clear, open, balanced. And at its heart, equanimity is letting go over and over. And those of you who are parents or who have been parents, um, actually, you never stop being a parent, even when they're out of the nest. You know, we wish that was the case, but not so much especially in the sense as children get over, get older, it requires more and more letting go. That's just the deal, the way it's set up. I remember my daughter. She, was, she came out of the birth canal strong-willed, and she pushed the transition earlier than I expected. 
I had to learn that my, what my role was, that, and it was shrinking quickly. I could give my input, I tried to set the boundaries that were necessary, and those boundaries were always a, you know, a matter of dispute. It was like the boundary between North and South Korea. There's a demilitarized zone for a while, and then there's a battle going on. And as she grew a little older, in teenage years, those boundaries had to be expanded or it would be just nuclear all the time. Now, she's grown. My role is very simple. You know, I offer love and support. I offer counsel only when asked. Doesn't happen very often. No one, and, I, and I know that she too, like everyone else who has walked this earth, will suffer in their own way. Guarantees she will make decisions, more than one, that will result in really painful circumstances for her that she'll, you know, she'll have to dig her way out of. And who can avoid this? No one. We'd like for our children to, but they won't. So there's this wise edge of caring and allowing. Caring and accepting. Caring and taking your hands off the controls when it's appropriate. When you can recognize those moments when equanimity is called for, when it's really needed, if, you can, if your mindfulness kind of triggers something, ah, a little equanimity would be nice here, and you can pause, clining the mind towards equanimity, that balance, taking some breaths, breathing, May I accept things just as they are. May I accept things just as they are. Mindfulness in the moment can be liberating. When you find yourself stuck in a pushing, grasping, controlling space, if, you can, if the mindfulness can just click on and you recognize what's happening, you've changed the relationship in that moment. Ah, Look at me, pushing, controlling, or grasping. You know? You're then much more able to relax. You know, in that moment that you've recognized, is that moment of awakening that we talk about when we meditate. Ah, this is what's happening. Let me, let me feel this awakening. And then you're much more able to relax and let go. And it all starts with simple, simple mindfulness. Your practice. You see, the universe is just way too big for you to hold on to and control. It just is. But it is the perfect size for letting go. So let's sit together for a moment or two.
Since my house burned down, I have a better view of the rising moon. Thank you very much for your attention and patience. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.